Welcome to the New Zealand Initiative podcast. I'm Michael Johnston. Today I'm joined by our Executive Director, Oliver Hartwich, and we thought it would be worth, before the end of the year, discussing how things are sitting in New Zealand now with a new government, the challenges they're facing, some of the early decisions that have been made, and what the prospects are for the new year. So welcome, Oliver. Perhaps you could outline things as you see them from here. Well, the new government has inherited a country in a mess. There's practically no area of public policy that is where it should be. We only just got GDP figures, revised ones too, which demonstrate that for the past year, in three out of four quarters, New Zealand's been in recession. And it made a bit of a fiction of the pre-food, didn't it? The pre-election fiscal update. Well, I didn't believe in the pre-food figures anyway, because I thought they were fiscal fantasy lens stuff. Mm. So we've got problems there. We've got problems in infrastructure. We just had the cancellation of the new inter-islander ferries because of massive cost blowouts, not so much for the ferries themselves, but for the port infrastructure. We had another report actually from the Auditor General demonstrating the massive cost overruns and the problems actually in just consenting and finding projects for infrastructure spending from the previous government. It's probably one of the factors explaining why we're in the fiscal mess we're in because of projects like that in the past. You know better than anyone else that we've got problems in our education system and that's to put it mildly. Yeah. So where New Zealand stands at the end of this year and really at the end of the last government's term is in a multiple crisis, an anomaly crisis really, where everything is broken and where we have to rebuild the country basically. And this is what the new government has set out to do. And we're broke and don't have the finance that we'd perhaps like to address a lot of these problems. Yes, but the good news is actually that the rebuild has begun with the first few decisions taken this week. So we mentioned the Inter-Islander Ferry already. There were another two decisions actually this week. One was actually to return the Reserve Bank to sanity and give it just a single mandate, namely price stability. That's something that we've called for for a long time, so that's happened now. The other one is to abolish the fair pay agreements. Always a misnomer, of course, and nothing to do with fair or agreements. I mean, something with pay, but that was the only truth in that term. Mm-hmm. So they are gone, and a good thing too, because actually for many years, um, going back really to 2019, the initiative has actually argued the case against fair pay agreements, demonstrating why they are simply not needed and why they would be harmful. And indeed harmful to the people they're purported to help. Indeed, that? indeed. Because the fair pay agreements came out of something a bit of a voodoo economics from the previous government, where they tried to explain that you could just increase pay And then productivity would somehow miraculously increase, whereas every economist knows that it has to be the other way around. First, the productivity goes up, and then, of course, you can share the proceeds of that. And I believe New Zealand historically has done quite well in terms of pay increases ahead of many other countries. Yeah, and basically, when you look through the last 30 years, you see that wage increases have been in line with productivity increases. Right. Now, of course, we would all like to see higher wages, but that comes down to our relatively shoddy productivity growth record. Mm. So if you want to do anything about wage increases, then make sure that we become more productive. So anyway, the government is really going full steam ahead on its 100-day program of reform. It's announced, of course, um, that it would repeal the successor to the Resource Management Act. It would then repeal early next year the three waters reforms. So, yep, there is a lot of cleaning up to do, but the government has started it. It's rolled up its sleeves, and I can't help but compare it with the incoming Adern government, And what they seemed to get on with was endless rounds of consultation and they set up many working groups and six years later it seemed that very few of those areas that they promised to address actually had come to anything. Yep, 
So that's quite a nice change of pace. I watched a bit of parliamentary questions today and I found it interesting that the now opposition is accusing the government of not doing proper due diligence on its reform program, right. repeal program, because the government has suspended the regulatory impact statements for the things it repeals. I think it's a bit rich actually coming from the guys opposite now because actually they haven't got a good record to stand on. I mean, you just have to read the Auditor General's report to get an idea of what kind of due diligence we used to have under them. And in any case, these are things that are now being repealed. And I think it is perfectly fine, actually, to do that under urgency in a 100-day program because that's exactly what they got elected for. Well, they're clearly in a hurry and can certainly argue they have a mandate. What's your understanding of why they've suspended that process of regulatory impact reporting? Because they have suspended it for the things that are obvious and that just need to be repealed, where we just want to go back to the status quo that we had before. For all the other things that this new government will do, of course, there will be proper cost-benefit analysis. And in fact, it's in their coalition agreements, the coalition partners have agreed to rigorous cost-benefit analysis for everything new they're going to do, but for the simple process of repealing some of the worst examples of really stupid policy-making from the past government, I think it is justifiable to go ahead and do this at speed. Right. And then having repealed what needs to be repealed, we can hope that they'll get on with equal alacrity with their proactive agenda. And there are some things that the New Zealand Initiative has been recommending for some time that we can have some hope will be enacted in legislation before long. One thing that I think of is the change in the regulation for pharmaceuticals, which our chief economist Eric Crampton has argued for. The idea being that if reputable overseas agencies have approved certain drugs, that we don't need to improve them too. And I think Eric's idea is what he calls the rule of two. If, say, Australia and Canada have approved a drug, then barring some extreme situation, that we would just automatically do the same. Yeah, the idea there is actually that we could free ride on international regulators, regulators that are often a lot bigger than MedSafe is in New Zealand. So think of the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration in the US. I mean, their entire budget can probably house MedSafe several times over, Mm. probably dozens of times. So why would we not take their expertise on regulation and just say, well, if the FDA and say the British regulator come to the conclusion that actually a medicine is safe, we should actually allow it here. And we would only give MedSafe the right to really rare circumstances challenge the decisions but generally speaking they would be accepted right and that would save new zealand taxpayers a lot of money but actually that's not the real reason why we want to do it we want to do it because we want to have faster access to medicines yeah well that's right and that saves lives of course exactly yeah so what are some of the other things that the new zealand initiative has been recommending that you're hopeful will see quite early action on with the new government Well, I mean, I'm very hopeful for the things in education because we have a new education minister now in Erica Stanford who is committed to education reform. I mean, that's your area. So uh, perhaps rather than asking me what you expect to see in education, I ask you. Well, I expect to see early action on literacy and numeracy. Erica Stanford has been very strong on that ever since I started talking to her a couple of years ago and certainly made much of it during the election campaign. So I'd expect to see early action to retrain our teachers in structured literacy and to get some new directions in the teaching of numeracy as well. And one of the policies there is that parents will receive regular measurements of their children's progress in those areas At the moment, any parent, including myself, struggles to make head or tail of the reports that come from schools because they're just not based on data. So all you're left with is some vague assertions about curriculum areas that span three years. And we really do need to have much better information. 
I'm hoping that with time as well, the performance of schools will become something that is monitored. But at the moment, at least, we can hope for regular reporting to parents. And then, of course, Erica isn't the only minister involved with school education. We've got David Seymour as an associate minister, and he'll be pushing for charter schools again. And that's certainly, again, something that the initiative has argued for. And we can look to countries like England, where they've adopted that on a fairly large scale and, and to great success. So I think there is hope. For the first time, I feel optimistic about education for many years. There may even be hope for tertiary education because we're getting changes to the fees-free policy. Yeah, I mean, ideally, you might want to abolish the whole thing, but at least shifting it from the first year fees-free to now the final year fees-free, that makes probably a difference. Even better, I think, are the regulations for free speech, where the government has made it a condition for receiving government funding for tertiary institutions to sign up to free speech as a principle for tertiary I think that's a great move. I think it'll take a great deal more than that to turn around the climate of our universities in particular that have become a political monoculture where it's very hard to stand up for a point of view that differs to the dominant view in academia. It can certainly be a career-limiting thing to do. And, and that's appalling in a university system which is supposed to be a place where ideas are freely contested. So I welcome that legislative change and I only hope that it will lead to cultural change that's going to be a harder battle. Yeah same here I mean it's a first step but it's a good one. Yeah. The other thing happening in tertiary education is of course the government will now revert the tape hookinger reforms so what used to be the politics um, they will probably become standalone institutions once again. I mean the damage in a way has been done but at least the government will now reform what turned out to be an extremely unworkable organization. It's a galling situation of course because it was immensely expensive to set up. It will be expensive to dismantle and for a while they won't even be back where they started. The most galling aspects in, aspect in all of that is actually that there used to be at least some functional politics and they became just as dysfunctional as the rest in the process. Yeah, it's a worry, but hopefully we will see some progress there. The other bit of progress, I think, will be on resource management. Something we have argued for for a long time, that we need a property rights-based planning legislation. Well, that is exactly what's now in the coalition agreement. So the coalition has agreed now to repeal David Parker's reforms to the Resource Management Act that became the Natural and Built Environment Act. And I mean, hard to believe, actually, but it was even worse than its predecessor. Mm. And we, we never liked the IMA to start with, but what they did in its stead was terrible and it's going to be repealed now. So that's a good thing, too. So in the interim, we're going back to the old IMA, but then we will get something that is entirely new. And that will be a property rights-based planning law. So roughly the idea is that you have the right to do what you like on your own property within some fairly broad parameters. Correct. That will be the starting point, whereas the previous starting point was de facto that property rights had been nationalized and you as a property owner were at the mercy of the state. Now that's going to be turned around. We're starting from the assumption that you are the property owner and you can basically do whatever you like to do with your land. And then come the constraints of the law, of course. But at least the starting point is different. And do you think that will make a significant difference to the housing market crisis where young people can't afford houses? And we have now a generational disconnect, I believe. Yeah. No, I think it will make a difference, but not on its own. That's another thing that's going to be introduced. The government will look at incentivizing councils for delivering of new housing. So there will be a fund where councils are paid above a certain threshold for the delivery of new housing. And 
Also in the coalition agreements, the coalition will look into sharing GSD with councils with the idea of incentivizing them. Another thing we've been recommending? Another thing we've been recommending just as well as the city deals, special economic zones style arrangements for individual councils. Another thing that the initiative has actually called for for a long time. Yeah, I think it's worth reflecting a little bit on the nature of the coalition agreement as well, because it's quite unlike its predecessors in the MMP era, which of course prior to we didn't tend to have coalitions. So it's much more specific and much more extensive than any other has been. And I see this as a recipe for hopefully a stable way of that the three parties can work together because they each have an agenda which is set out in the coalition agreement. And so they all have an incentive to support one another's parts of that and not undermine it in order to get their own agenda advanced. Yeah, and it's also interesting to see how complementary these two agreements really are. Yeah, People before the election thought that ACT and New Zealand First will never be able to work together because they were well, traditional enemies really in the political process. Mm. They found out during the coalition negotiations that they had a lot in common. And so I think they actually complement each other quite nicely in the coalition. I agree. I I mean, they they do have their ideological differences, of course, and we might think about foreign investment as being one of those disagreements where ACT would like to open things up. Well, they have. That's the other interesting thing about the coalition agreements. So New Zealand First has now agreed to effectively reducing ministerial discretion when it comes to foreign investment to national security. Initially, I thought, well, was that an oversight when we looked at it in the coalition agreements? But it now appears to be the case that New Zealand First has actually agreed to that properly. And in the future, there will be a lot more openness to foreign investment in New Zealand, and we will see more companies hopefully entering our market. And that, of course, was something that you spoke a lot about after the trip that you had to Ireland with many of our members, the way in which direct foreign investment had transformed the Irish economy over the last few decades. And now they have giant tech companies manufacturing chips there and an immense improvement in their GDP as a result. That's exactly right. That was one of the reasons why we really wanted to visit Ireland and find out more about that. But FDI, foreign direct investment, is one of those issues, a bit like education really, that's been with us from the beginning. Our very first publication in 2012 was a little research note produced by Bryce Wilkinson under the title Verboten. And it was all about New Zealand's hostility to FDI and we compared New Zealand regulations on FDI with regulations around the world and came to the conclusion that New Zealand was one of the most restrictive countries when it comes to overseas investment rules. So really, since the start, 2012, we've been campaigning for more openness. We made the case once again when we took the members to Ireland and now, just months later, we see this in the coalition agreements and so we couldn't be happier. Indeed. So we've come to the end of 2023. This will be our final podcast episode for the year. I expect we'll be back early in the new year and we'll be looking ahead. I guess the work of the initiative might change a little bit with the new conditions. We've now got more than 10 years of reports behind us with many of the recommendations being picked up by the new government. So I guess our work might move towards holding them to account for those promises more than perhaps generating a lot of new recommendations. What are your thoughts about that? 
Yeah, and sometimes it might actually just be cheering them on from the sidelines. Yeah. So, for example, when it comes to abolishing the fair pay agreements, something we called for and really have called for for a long time, when the government's doing that, of course, we will support them because hardly anyone else is. They are receiving an extremely negative media coverage. These it, ha- days. it has been striking, hasn't it? How I can't remember a new government that has met such a chorus of howls from the mainstream media. Yeah, from the mainstream media, plus immediately, of course, being the subject of leaks from Treasury and from other government departments. Mm. So I think actually part of the role might be to support them where they're doing things that make sense, especially where they make things, where they do things that we have actually called for. Yes. Because I think there needs to be a bit more balance in the media. Somebody needs to actually explain why they're doing this, why this makes sense. And especially for those things that we have called for ourselves, they will have our support. Yes, indeed. Well, thank you for joining me today, Oliver, and I wish all of our listeners a very enjoyable summer break and holiday season, and we'll be back again in the new year. Indeed, and from me too, Merry Christmas to you all. 